This is Quintus Curtius, and in this podcast, we're going to talk about the movie Apocalypse Now, the 1979 film Apocalypse Now. And uh, this is a great movie to talk about because there's so much material here. There's just so many themes, so many great scenes, so many ideas, so much here to this movie. And I like to talk about movies anyway. I've always liked to do that. You know, I used to do it a lot more on my site, but I felt like um, uh, people did not share, <laughs> did not fully share the enthusiasm that I had for for a lot of these movies. But Apocalypse Now is special, and somebody on Twitter recently asked me to uh, talk about it in a podcast, and I, I thought, okay, maybe now's the time to do that. I think the time is right uh, because we're sort of living in this. Um, I don't know, a very kind of a chaotic and dark period here where uh, apocalyptic themes tend to match the zeitgeist of where we are right now. So I think it's it's worth talking about a little bit. Worth talking about a little bit. So let's uh, let's dive right into it. Apocalypse Now, 1979, this movie was released. And you know, my my first acquaintance with Apocalypse Now was in college, was in college. I can't remember what year it was. It may have been sophomore or junior year in college. And I saw this movie with a few other friends in a dorm room, dormitory room. And, you know, in those days, and it's probably still like this in college, but except for the VHS player, but, you know, you'd get a bunch of guys together, get some beers. You would, uh, uh, you know, attach your... uh, VCR to your TV, you know, pop in the VHS tape and just let it rip. You know, if you were lucky, you had some good speakers, you would be able to get some some of the surround sound experience. But that was my first uh, my first acquaintance with the movie. I, I remember my parents saw it uh, back, um, you know, I think a year or, or, or two after it came out in the early 80s. And I remember they rented a, a copy of it from, I think, a um, university library or university film library and i i didn't see the movie i heard it in it i heard it from a different room and it was uh, it gave even then it gave off the impression of of being a very serious very dark masterpiece but anyway when i first saw apocalypse now i i i remember the the, the first I'll, I'll still never forget the first few minutes of it when you've got the camera focused on the jungle and then You've got uh, Jim Morrison starts starts uh, singing the end, and I said to myself, you know, th- at that time I didn't know the song the end, but I knew I recognized Jim Morrison's voice, and I said to myself, "Is that Jim Morrison? Boy, they really got they they re- <laughs> they really got some heavy hitters here for this movie." And then it started, and I was just captivated by the lush cinematography, the the the, the dark themes the very strange and, and mystical quality of the the way the material was presented. And then, of course, you know, there's those incomparable monologues at the end that are just uh, provide a, a treasure trove of, of philosophical exp- uh, exploitation, I think, in many ways, that you could, you could mine those scenes uh, in, in many ways. But... Uh, I knew right away that this was a very special movie. 
many people did not like it. There are some that did not like it. And that's fine. You know, I, I think that's fine. But I think the first thing that I would I would comment about Apocalypse Now is I think that the, the mistake that you can very easily make with this movie is to think that it's a Vietnam movie. Okay, don't fall into that trap. Yes, it's set in Vietnam. Yes, it is. Uh, obviously, it uses the Vietnam War as a vehicle to convey philosophical ideas, but it really is not a Vietnam movie, in my view. Again, this is my opinion. It is really not a Vietnam movie. This is literature. This movie is a work of literature in many ways. Its themes transcend Vietnam. Its themes transcend Vietnam. Vietnam is just the scene. The Vietnam was just the setting. This movie really is about the decomposition of the human soul, how a man can go to pieces, how a man can go to pieces, and the 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 inexpressible darkness that lurks behind the nature of, of so many things, of so many things, and how that that dark fate is for some inescapable. So it's a very dark movie, but somehow it's very satisfying. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But it's it's not a Vietnam War movie. You have to see this movie as literature. And as everyone knows, the movie is loosely based on uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And, you know, you're going to be surprised to hear this, but I never liked that book. I never liked that book. I love the themes that it explores. I love the ideas in it. But the writing, it's just, its uh, I found it to be just tiresome and tedious. I felt that way when I first read it years ago, and I tried again. I listened to an audiobook version of it a few months ago. And it was just, it was, it was, oh, it was just, uh, it, it was just, it was like uh, getting your teeth pulled. You know, it takes Joseph Conrad about five pages to say something that he could say in two paragraphs. And it's just, it's just all of this, um, uh, just empty uh, sentences that lead nowhere. And again, just, this is my opinion. It's, it's not his best writing. I think he's, he's, um, Youth, a narrative I like, and and uh, Lord Jim is good, but uh, there's something about Heart of Darkness that that um, was not to my liking. But in any case, it's still a great book, and I would still recommend it, even though I didn't like it, because the themes that it deals with are so are so great and are so relevant that they can't be ignored. Now, the way this movie started to get this movie was in production for a long time. John Milius, uh, who is a was a very sort of masculine oriented screenwriter uh, for movies, uh, he actually had had volunteered. Interesting thing about this guy, he had volunteered to try to go to Vietnam. He actually wanted to go, but they rejected him because he had asthma. But he wrote uh, some some major screenplays. The, the only one I can remember, I think he wrote the screenplay to Conan, Conan the Barbarian. And he wanted to make something of uh, of Conrad's book in a Vietnam War setting, and the the screenplay underwent many many drastic revisions over the years. At first, they were were trying to get George Lucas to to uh, direct the movie. He declined. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola took it on, and he rewrote much of Milius's script 
and it eventually just ballooned into about a thousand pages of writing. And this is a movie that was in, it was in production, then shelved, then in production and shelved for many years. The idea to make this first came, I think, in like the 1969 or 1970. And it took like nine, it took, well, it took six or seven years before this movie finally got off the ground. Uh, also, some of the legendary problems was the casting. Every, it seems like every major Hollywood actor was approached for some role in this movie. You know, Harvey Keitel, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Jack Nicholson, uh, even Al Pacino. And most of them just did not want to be away from the United States for that long. They, the, the, the commitment involved like being in the Philippines for, for three weeks. And this, and this gives you an idea of, of kind of what, what, what chicken shits in many ways. And in my view, a lot of these Hollywood prima donnas are. Steve McQueen demanded $3 million to play Willard, to play the role of Willard. And he did, but he did not, he did not want to be in the Philippines for three weeks. So this is a guy who, who couldn't just suck it up and be away from the States for three weeks for a $3 million paycheck in the Philippines. He just couldn't do it or didn't want to do it. I mean, it's just, you know, again, uh, the mind boggles at, at some of these, uh, the attitudes of, of some of these actors. And many of the others didn't want to be away that that long either. I mean, here was a chance to be part of something very special. And none of them could put aside their little Southern California lifestyles, their movie star lifestyles, just to suck it up and just to just to help create something that was great art. But again, that's how it is. So finally, they settled on a cast. And then they were not able to secure the cooperation of the U.S. Army. They wanted the, the cooperation of the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army was not interested. So they flew off to the, so Coppola flew off to the Philippines, was able to get the help of the Philippine government. Uh, Ferdinand Marcos at that time was the, was the authoritarian ruler of the, um, the country. And he promised support. And they, uh, you know, they built all these expensive sets. And then the sets were destroyed by a typhoon. I think it was Typhoon Olga or something like that. And then other problems happened. You know, Dennis Hopper had some drug issues going on. Uh, uh, Martin Sheen apparently had a nervous breakdown and a heart attack. I guess they started casting Harvey Keitel originally in the role of Willard, and he didn't work out. No one is, no one really, I've never really heard an explanation of of why he was replaced, but um, I think it was the right decision. I, I just don't see him out there on the river uh, doing the playing the role of Willard. I just, I, I don't think he has that shell-shocked look. And you, you need someone in that role who basically is, has one foot in the grave, <laughs> kind of like, kind of like what Martin Sheen actually did have. Maybe that's why he was so good in the Willard role was because he truly was suffering from a nervous breakdown, nervous exhaustion. Uh, that famous scene in the beginning where he introduces his character, that where he punches the mirror, that was not faked. That was actually, he actually did that. He was drunk during the scene. So the movie's problems were legendary, legendary. What had originally, what was originally intended to be a shooting of about four or five months turned into a year. 
And then Coppola had to come back to, to the United States and edit like a, a million feet of film, which is an arduous, arduous task. So for a project that was so star-crossed and so beset by misfortune, it's only appropriate that the final result should be a work of art of transcendent brilliance and, and surpassing value. Transcendent brilliance and surpassing value, because that's really what it is. You know, I assume everyone listening to this podcast has already seen the movie, so I'm not going to describe... It's not necessary for me to get into the uh, the plot, but it, it, obviously it involves a a, um, a special forces officer played by Martin Sheen. His name is Willard. He's sent. He, he's uh, he receives an assignment to travel upriver to Cambodia to terminate a renegade Green Beret colonel who is out there operating beyond any reasonable restraint. He's out there doing his own thing, leading a Montagnard army, and is basically uh, left the reservation. And so, uh, you know, obviously anyone that's been in the military knows that these types of, you know, these types of missions are, are I mean, this, this, is, this is literary license. There's, there's a lot. And that's another, another thing that I, I always found very irritating. When I used to talk about this movie to guys in the military, I would all, I would sometimes get this answer. Well, that's not very realistic. You know, you can't you can't hear uh, music from a helicopter when when a helicopter's uh, flying. Uh, the 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 sound of the rotors obscures the music. You can't that all that ride of the Valkyries. That's all bullshit and blah 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 blah. And I would always tell them. I would say, look, of course, of course, it's of course it's not realistic. It's not meant to be realistic. It's a work of literature. It's it's literary license. It's not meant to be realistic. Stop looking for realism. This is not that kind of a movie. This is a surrealistic work. It's not realistic. It's surrealistic. And it is deliberately done that way to convey higher truths. Higher truths about human nature, about life, about existence that may be are difficult to reach through the normal medium of realism. Sometimes you have to get out of realism and you have to get into surrealism. And that's really where the cinematography of Apocalypse Now really is such a, a brilliant triumph. You've got, you've got this very, very um, artful use of camera and music and uh, you know shots that are kind of... Um, overlaid with each other there's a, it's a film technique i'm not sure what they call it but uh, double exposures maybe i'm not sure what they call it but um you've just got so many so many great great scenes in that movie that help to convey this this uh, idea of souls in chaos souls heading for destruction and when willard finally reaches the colonel kurtz compound everything is just right the the culmination of the movie just fits perfectly because you've reached the end of the line you've reached the final the final state of disorder of the mind the final state of corruption of the soul and yet you have this you have this uh this character this colonel kurtz who is supposed to be thin actually you know marlon brando showed up 
uh, his antics are legendary as well. But he showed up on the set without having read Heart of Darkness and being uh, extremely overweight. But Coppola compensated for that by shooting him above the shoulders most of the time. He didn't, uh, he didn't give him a full body shot. And that was the right thing to do. But um, these brooding monologues really are about how idealis idealistic men in extraordinary situations can be driven over the edge. Idealistic men, men perhaps who have seen too much, who have learned too much, can maybe be driven insane. And, you know, that's a theme that we find in Greek mythology uh, occasionally where uh, whom the gods, this idea of whom the gods wish to destroy, they first drive insane. And in some ways, knowing too much, seeing too much, penetrating too much, too deeply with too much vision can be overpowering for some minds. They can't handle it. They can't grasp the inexpressible darkness of existence. They just can't fathom it. And it leads them to commit horrors, to commit horrors. And really the strong point of Apocalypse Now is the mood that it maintains. You're, you, it casts a spell over the viewer. You're just surrounded by, by heaviness and darkness and that's why I often tell people jokingly, when you finally finish watching this movie, you feel exhausted. It's an exhausting experience. You feel spent. When the, when the, the final uh, scenes uh, come to a close, you just feel spent. But yet at the same time, you feel very satisfied because the movie could only end this way. It could not end any other way. And you may know that Francis Ford Coppola had contemplated different endings for this movie. There was one ending where Willard calls in an airstrike. And I'm glad he didn't go with that that ending. The ending that he did go with, where the, the colonel is just tastefully, tastefully assassinated by Willard, is the perfect ending. Is the perfect ending. Now, this movie has been re-released a few times in its history. It was re-released in the late 80s, and then there was a redux version that was released in the early 2000s. Let me let me give you my thoughts on the uh, the redux version. There are some people that like the Apocalypse Now redux, and I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. I think the the um, the original cut, the the original you know director's cut. Uh, not the redux cut is is just right. Sometimes movies need to be edited. Sometimes you putting too much in there is not a good thing. And what I didn't, what I did not like about the redux version is it included scenes that I felt interrupted the narrative, that threw off the pacing of the movie, that distracted the viewer from the themes that the movie is trying to convey. You know, the particularly. In the Redux version, you've got this ridiculous Playboy bunny sequence where they chase the bunnies around and they're chasing them in the rain. I remember they're like kind of sliding around in the mud. And it just doesn't work. It's just ridiculous. It would never happen. Uh, I, just, I just don't think it, it, it doesn't have any, 
It doesn't have any air of authenticity to it. And also this French plantation sequence that's um, that you see in the Redux version, this extended, it's like a 15 or 20 minute scene uh, where Willard uh, meets a uh, French colonial family that's still a holdover from the old colonial days and they're there enjoying dining in this table and like living this sort of uh, great expectations existence where they're living in the past. I don't know. Uh, some people like it. Um, it's not. It's not a bad sequence. It's not. It's not. Um, but it. It just doesn't go with the movie. It, it interrupts the flow of the narrative. In my view. In my view, it interrupts the flow of the narrative, and it was rightfully cut out. But it, but then again, decide for yourself. Decide for yourself, because my opinion is just one man's opinion, and opinions may differ. Now. I suppose in a podcast like this, it's inevitable that I might want to talk about some of my favorite scenes from the movie. And um, there are a few, really. I, I, I love, I love obviously, the, the final, that final execution uh, sequence at the end when, when um, Willard, Willard's head comes out of the water and he's in camouflage paint and he you know, walks on down the hall with his uh, machete and he he terminates the colonel's command to the sound of the, the doors is uh, the end. It's just, it's just, uh, you know, it, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that when it comes to film, film art. And I'd read somewhere that uh, the doors actually gave Coppola access to some of their unreleased tapes, unreleased recordings of the end. And that's why you'll find some of the ver the version that's used in the movie. You can't really find that precise version anywhere else. I like that scene. I love the scene where the chief uh, is is impaled by a spear, and he's he says, you know, a spear, you know, as as he's penetrated by this spear. His only his only, the only two words he says are a spear. I mean, it's just just great, just a great and strange uh, incident and um, you know there's just a lot of other scenes in there I, you know I was never really a big fan of the whole Colonel Kilgore the, the Robert Duval I mean it's it's uh, it's fine you know there's nothing wrong with with his uh, his little shtick his antics I mean, Robert Duval does his thing and that's great but um, I didn't really think it was um, as great as everybody said it was, I, I kind of like the more introspective moments, the more introspective moments, you know, where uh, you've got Martin Sheen in his in his little BOQ room, bachelor officer's quarters there, and you know, the sheets are bloody and he's been drinking and it's, it's just, it's staring at the ceiling fans. <sighs> you, you have to have been in the military to appreciate that, that scene. And I'll just leave it at that. I guess I'll just leave it at that. But um, if there's anything that I want listeners to get out of this podcast is see the movie several times. Decide for yourself what you like about it, what you don't like about it. But it really, to me, the, the themes are, the great themes are the decomposition of the soul, the inexpressible irrationality that lurks behind the facade of normal civilization of day-to-day -day life. And how we must persist in our missions, regardless of where those missions lead us. Now, those three things, 
the darkness of the, the, the decomposition of the soul, the inexpressible irrationality lurking behind the veneer of civilization. And maybe this idea, this heroic idea that we have to continue no matter what on our mission, regardless of where it leads, regardless, because at some point we are the mission. We become the mission. The mission becomes us. We are one. You know, and that's how it is. That's how it is. You have to press on. One final word. There are some the 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 ending sequence, the the ending sequence of the movie, there are several different versions of this. There's uh the the regular ending sequence where it just has uh credits rolling at the end. But there was there's another version that you can occasionally see on television or some in some recordings of the, the movie where it's this uh, explosions where uh, Francis Ford Coppola was required by contract to blow up the set when he finished. And he filmed the explosions, the, the, um, the ghastly uh, eruptions of flame and smoke uh, when he did that. And he wanted to use it somehow. So he, he uh, um, originally intended, I think, to, to put that as part of the closing credits. But then he took it out because he read or heard somewhere that people were thinking that it meant that uh, Willard had called in an airstrike and he didn't uh, he didn't want people to get that impression so uh, I really love that that uh, ending sequence with the explosions it's a very um, hellish and apocalyptic uh, vision and if you can if you can see a version that has that in it you should see it because it um, I don't know, it really, really adds something at the end. So, anyway, those are my thoughts on Apocalypse Now. See the movie, buy it, and um, that's all I have to say. <laughs>